Star Podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watch Stargate and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing better to do. So listen, here's our show. Hello and welcome to Probing the Wormhole, a Stargate discussion podcast. I'm your host, Rose, and with me, as always, are Samantha, a super fan, and Malika, kind of a fan. Today, we will be discussing season one, episode 10 of SG1, The Torment of Tantalus. So we start out this episode in the old gate room ends up being video of Daniel watching the old gate room where we have scientists manually spinning the gate uh, and doing experiments from 1945. Jack comes in and finds Daniel watching this footage and they have a you know nice exchange. What I thought was interesting here, you have Jack's when he says the Pentagon's lost entire countries. I thought that was an interesting way to like, what do we think his attitude is towards military leadership? He's super cynical. I appreciate it. I am there for that. Whoever writes for him really gets the character. I I really like it. I like the little quips. I like the little throwaway lines. It develops O'Neill every single episode. I'm impressed. I think also Richard Dean Anderson threw in his own dialogue sometimes. And he apparently also vetoes a lot of dialogue. Like he has a lot of creative control over what his character ends up saying, which I think caused some frustration for the writers because he would rewrite everything. So we go to Catherine's house, by the way, extremely nice house with a servant that was noteworthy. And Daniel is there and she is very happy to see him. She mentions that she thought he was still on Abydos. How does she know he was on Abydos? As far as anyone on earth knew, they came back, wrote their reports that Abydos was blown up end of story. And we only found out that that wasn't true when in episode one, children of the gods. And we also find out in this episode that she really didn't know the Stargate program was restarted. So who told her that Daniel was on Abydos and when? Probably Jack. He was the only one who knew that Daniel was still alive, right? So he lied on his report, but trusted her enough to tell her the truth. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that in his character. So I had a question about this. At one point, Daniel mentions that the box he received from the Pentagon is filled with declassified stuff, including that video then, right? Mm-hmm. But if it's declassified, yeah. that means it's released to the public. Yeah, I was unsure about that too. I don't know if it was just declassified from a certain level to a less, still at a certain level of classification, because there's no way that's just available. But the other thing is, how did nobody know about this? Right. They they supposedly have a pretty high top secret level of, of access. Wouldn't they, even if it's classified, be given access to the history of the Stargate experiments, records, whatever? It just doesn't make sense to me. I think Jack figured it out. They just lost it. They probably just misplaced this box because it was in uh, 1945 when they were, you know, dropping the bomb, the end of the war. So I could definitely see them misplacing a box. And then they found it and they're like, oh, we're going to declassify it and give it to you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's our government for you. <laughs> I really liked how they handled the uh, the flashback scenes with Daniel and Catherine. It was, it was very, very smooth. Like when young 
Catherine is putting sugar in her teacup and then it switches to older Catherine doing the same thing. I really liked that. Yeah, me too. I thought it was well done. And I like the beginning, how you start up. The first scene is the old gate room and then you see it turn into a video. Malika, what did you think about that? Did you think that we were going to go back to like 1945 and the episode would be all in 1945? No. Okay. Does, uh, you know, I watch enough TV and movies to know that sepia is really not something that you want to spend an hour in. (laughs) I really like the diving helmet. Like that absolutely makes sense. When you make the wormhole, it looks like water. And when it shoots out, it looks like water. It looks like a huge <laughs> like wave, right? So of course you would wear a diving diving bell helmet. That makes absolute sense. Walking into what looks like water with just a, a vest and your fatigues and a backpack, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I thought they did a good job of really showing that these guys had literally no idea what the hell they were doing, what this thing was, what to expect, because they also have like a cord on the other on the back of him thinking they could just pull him back out. Although they did put handhelds on the gate. Did you notice that? No, they did. So they could move the the inner ring around easily. I'm guessing. Did they find this address with the gate? Like, how did they know to dial this address or was it just random? There's like thousands and thousands of gate addresses. I don't think it would be random. It was either the movie or it was in this episode that they talked about how they had done uh, thousands and thousands of permutations. And this is the first one to open anything. And so the idea is that this gate could connect to Abydos and to this planet because they were relatively close to Earth and the symbols were relatively close to each other. So there isn't the Doppler shift problem. Right. So they just got lucky. It just seems like, I mean, there's like, when you think of how many ways you can combine seven symbols, it's a lot. (laughs) Okay, so Catherine is pretty mad, as she should be, that she was not apprised of the new Stargate program. I think that that was pretty shitty to cut her out, considering how involved she was in the movie with that program. Then we go to a flashback of Ernest talking to Catherine about the research. First, Ernest, young Ernest is played by Paul McGillian, who ends up being a regular character on Atlantis. So they they definitely recycle actors between the two shows. And he also has a Scottish accent on Atlantis. So I thought he was Scottish. I looked him up. Apparently he's Scottish Canadian. Oh. Is this old Ernest or young Ernest? Young Ernest, young Ernest. So you'll see the actor again. Young Catherine also is in Atlantis on at least one episode, maybe more. The way they're talking, Catherine clearly knows her shit, right? She's giving him advice on how to make the gate work better. He seems almost surprised at her good advice. And I think that's the point is like, she really should have been part of this research team, but because she was a woman was not allowed to be. And this was sort of showcasing that. But I would have hoped that Ernest would have fought more for her involvement, considering how, first of all, she knew what they were doing and also was helpful, was providing helpful information, indicating she was pretty smart. Mm. But it was 1945, right? So. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, you know, it feels just so old timey. 1945 was a pretty long time ago. So Hidden Figures took place in 1961, almost 20 years before they even decided that women could do math. So why do we think the U.S. government cut Catherine out of the loop with this program when it got restarted? Wouldn't they say, wouldn't she be the first person they'd go to? Arrogance would be my answer. 
I was going to say, they just don't want an old lady hanging around. Yeah. They think she's not valuable. Yeah. I'm thinking because she's a civilian and if they restarted it, they wanted to keep it just military. Daniel's a civilian and they have civilian like doctors and scientists and stuff. Well, no, but actually the reason why they started it was because the Gawul came in. It was right. a, it was a closed down project. They only restarted it as an accident trying to get back their their stolen air woman. So it wasn't like a planned thing. I don't know why they wouldn't go to her, but it feels like this was I mean obviously it wasn't planned. This was kind of a spontaneous we need to fix what just happened. No, I think it was just more of a military operation. And Catherine stood for the discovery aspect of the Stargate. So why go to her if you were going to treat this as a military operation? But they have like anthropologists and not just Daniel. Like we saw in in the first commandment, there was an anthropologist on that team that I'm assuming was civilian. So it could be that they're like, okay, well, she discovered it. That's it. It must have been an assumption that she has nothing to bring to the project. So we're going to cut her out. Maybe you know, maybe it was one of those, like, this woman is annoying and pushy and I don't want her to be around. So we're not going to have her involved in this project. We flash back and forth between the present where Daniel's talking to Catherine and lets her know that they did in fact turn on the gate in 1945, which apparently she did not know. So the thing that is frustrating is that not only was she cut out of the loop now, but her father totally lies to her. Ernest doesn't fight for her to be involved in the program. And her father, you know, doesn't seem to think she has any value with this program, despite her obvious intelligence and familiarity with the device. We also see the flashback where he tells her that Ernest was killed in an accident. So not even trusting her with the truth of what happened to the person she was supposed to marry. But all of this is very disrespectful to Catherine. And I kind of get mad on her behalf. Well, like, think about it. You already think that your daughter, who is very smart, is not smart and is not capable of working on the program. And you know that if you say, Ernest, your fiance, boyfriend, walk through the gate that we got working and disappeared for the rest of her life, she's going to be, or for the rest of the dad's life, she's going to be like, I want to be on the program. Take me to the gate where I'm going through. You can short circuit that with just saying, oh, he's dead. Yeah. So selfish. Oh, of course. Yeah. That's a bad person. That's it. <laughs> That dad is bad and selfish. So again, we talked about how can no one know how this had happened? Like, so, okay. So he lies to her to protect her fragile female feelings and all. Yeah. Don't they have to report? What do they tell Ernest's parents? What do they tell? Don't they have to report? They have a video of it that obviously gets filed with the Pentagon and put in a box that somebody loses, but no one follows up with this. No, they, they just decide, oh, this is scary. He went through and obviously died. We're shutting this down. Like, yeah. how is this knowledge just totally lost? Well, I'm sure that Ernest's family knew that he was working on something top secret. And so all you have to say is he was working on a top secret pro- project and he, he died. No, they probably assumed that something to do with the bomb. Yeah, right. that's yeah. true. 1945. Yeah. 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 I, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure that this has happened not many times, but lots of people are on top secret things and die and nobody ever knows. It's a valid question. Like, what did they tell Hanson's family? Assuming he had family. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people die when they go through the gate. Or Daniel's family. I don't know if he has family, but right. We're, we're going to learn. We're going to learn more about Daniel's family. <laughs> Great. I, was I think we can learn yet. more about everyone's family except Jack. His family like remains a mystery throughout. 
So we go to the base and Hammond's not happy with Daniel for disclosing top secret information to a civilian. Jack is sort of covering for him, didn't didn't authorize Daniel to disclose, but definitely knew what was going to happen and expresses his opinion, basically, that Catherine should have been told about this program from the beginning. It's clear to me that Catherine has a very, very good relationship with Daniel, with Jack, and with Sam. Yeah, I guess that kind of explains why maybe Carter wasn't involved in the first mission or why she didn't go on the first mission because she had that relationship with Catherine. So you think they cut her out because they didn't yeah, like because, Catherine? Yeah, because why Why would you not allow Catherine, or Carter on that mission? She knows the science, she knows the tech, she knows the central players. Why didn't she get to go? Maybe General West was a big fat sexist pig. Okay, we just, yeah, okay. We can blame it all, blame it all on West. Only one vagina per team. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Catherine's okay. already taken that role. So. Got it. All right. <laughs> many, too many women and, you know, the emotions and the hormones, not good. They can bomb another country. <laughs> All the stupid reasons. I did like that Hammond was finally convinced to okay the mission after he heard that there was uh, possibly a man left behind. That was a nice touch. Yeah. And and Hammond really does. He goes from being pretty pissed off to like hearing them and sort of making a decision based on their arguments instead of just being pissed off, which I thought was a good, you know, it was a good quality in a, in a leader that you can set aside your personal feelings of having your authority be disregarded in order to make the best decision. But letting Catherine go, I don't think that would have, there's a lot of things that wouldn't have happened in the real world, but I just don't see that happening in in the real world, that an old, older lady would be allowed to go on the mission. Right. Like what if they exit and they get fired on or they have to run or there's like really tough conditions that she's not physically prepared for. But she doesn't need to be physically prepared because Daniel and O'Neill will carry her. (laughs) <laughs> not let her walk through the gates by her on her own power when we've already seen she can walk fine <laughs> and they're like either side have her arms holding her up that was fucking weird but it's also i feel like they think of her as like their grandma like they they clearly have a very protective like feeling toward her and they they seem to think of her almost like the matriarch of the program and treat her accordingly but you can do that without holding her up like walk right next to her that's cool she's fully capable of taking steps on her own so how old is she supposed to be the gate was discovered in 1928 she yeah she looked about like seven eight so she's born in 1920 so my my, that's about so today she would be like 101 so this was what 25 years ago yeah So she's, okay, she's in her 70s. I mean, you can still be vital in your 70s and she showed us that she was. Yeah, totally, I agree. She showed no sign of not being able to walk. (laughs) Maybe that's why Hammond let her go. (laughs) That's all it takes, you can walk, (laughs) okay. (laughs) We get to that planet, into this crumbling castle that is pretty much falling into the ocean. Yeah, it's perched on the cliff. Not a great place to put this meaning of life pedestal. But this had to be like thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, right? Maybe back then, maybe the cliff eroded a little bit and it was actually further away from the cliff initially. They didn't understand erosion. Well, they used something because I paused it a little bit further in the scene. I mean, in the episode, but I saw rebar, which I don't, 
I, I mean, I've been to a lot of castles. I spent a lot of time in Scotland. I never saw any rebar. I'm just saying. Well, these were ancient aliens that made this. So they definitely had rebar. Definitely had, definitely had rebar. <laughs> so then we see Ernest naked, old Ernest. I love Sam's reaction to old Ernest. It, no. She gets like this sort of like, like, um, like her Catholic schoolgirlness comes out where she sees this naked, his old naked man is like, oh my. And then he, like, as soon as he tries to like come where he's hugging everybody and she like dodges out of the way <laughs> so she doesn't have to hug him. I found Ernest so endearing. I love old Ernest. Do you think he was actually naked? Because I, I couldn't, usually you can see like a little hint of the, the privacy loincloth they give them, but I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see anything. I don't know if he was actually naked on set, but he definitely was naked on the show. I, I'm sure he had some kind of modesty garment. I mean, he's a man. We're not going to see any dinglage. <laughs> Especially on this show. No, we only do full frontal for women on this show. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm all, I'm always down for old men naked and crying. Not <laughs> hugs. <laughs> but what about him not hugging Catherine? I mean, we find out a little yeah. bit more later, but he was just like, eh. And kept moving. I liked that. I really did. You think that they're going to go for the big Hollywood ending hug and kiss with all the music soaring, but no, he just grunts at her and walks away. Yeah. And so like, what do we think that's about? And then, you know, later she sort of finds him and they have a conversation, but like, why is he afraid of her? Is it because her physically being there shatters his delusion that she has been with him the whole time? Or is it guilt that he left her? What's that about? Later on, we find out that he has been hallucinating her uh, mm -hmm. for these 50 years. So he couldn't have been hallucinating her as the woman that walked through the gate. He's hallucinating her as the young woman that he was dating in, the, in 1945. So I would think it would be strange to see this old woman who you have been seeing as a young woman for 50 years. Yeah, like it was a, a crashing of reality with, you know, because I mean, 50 years completely alone. I mean, that's a horrific thing. You know, it reminds me of solitary confinement. At least he didn't, wasn't in a cage. Like he was on this planet that appeared to be quite pleasant, but with literally not a person to talk to for that long in a strange, scary situation. I mean, what does that have to do to your mind? It, it totally makes sense to me that he conjured her up and created a life with her because otherwise he would have lost it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what do you think the food situation was like? Because at one point he hands Daniel this wrinkly eggplant looking thing, which by the way, would completely suck if the only thing you had to eat was eggplant. But I'm thinking maybe fish. He probably ate a lot of fish. Yeah, I mean, he's very skinny. I think they probably cast him intentionally because he's this like sort of frail person who was probably just subsisting on the bare minimum for all these years. Maybe there was like rabbits that you can eat and vegetables. Yeah, vegetable. I mean, whatever's growing on the island. He did say that he walked many miles with Catherine looking for other people. So I'm mm -hmm. sure he stumbled across edible vegetation. How do you know it's edible until you eat it and don't die? Well, he's got 50 <laughs> years to, to be have tummy aches. Seems like he had a lot of opportunity to die and just didn't. And they really lucked out there. Especially since the fact that he is living in a castle that is absolutely collapsing, like every second 
it is something is falling from the ceiling. What I thought was interesting was that the team never said anything about it. Not never, but they they waited a long time. Nobody was upset about, you know, the ceiling collapsing on them as they're having dialogues with each other. It was it was weird. It was weird. It, it didn't seem to be as imminent a concern as it should have been, because even without the storm, like when dust is falling from your ceiling, it's not a great sign. Right. You should probably get out of the building. And nobody did seem to be concerned about that. And also, like, isn't it lucky that they went right then? Because had they waited another year, like the storm comes once a year, had they waited like two days, it would have been shit out of luck. So they really did get there in the nick of time. It's weird. A storm coming once a year. Different planet. Anything could happen. Sure. Okay. (laughs) I mean, the timing of it was just a little too perfect, but that's the case in every episode. Well, you have to create the danger, right? We have to have the excitement. Can you imagine if there wasn't time pressure? <laughs> they were just standing around in the castle for days and days and days. Yes, that's true. That's true. And then there wouldn't be any like Jeopardy and Daniel having to make that choice. And I get it. I get it. It's just, you know, <laughs> considering he's been there for 50 years and they come on like the last day before the gate goes into the ocean. <laughs> it's a bit much. We go back to the gate room and we see Catherine being kind of in shock as to how that interaction went and her having this little conversation with Sam, where Sam makes that very sweet comment of the heart never grows old. Foreshadowing, maybe. (laughs) So we get to the point where Daniel and Ernest are talking and he's talking about the place as Heliopolis. That's how he describes it as a meeting place. And Daniel seems concerned that the Gould have been there before, but we don't really get an answer. So Ernest doesn't say he's he's seen anything Gould-like. But if you look at the place, it does have Gould design, right? Like the way the lines are, it sort of reminds me of Gould design of the Jaffa uniforms. Is that implying that that was a Gould place that had been abandoned or that the Gould ripped off that kind of style from whoever these aliens were? I think they ripped it off. Because if you remember when Teal was talking to Hammond, he talked about how the gold are scavengers. So they take whatever they can get. They're not inventors. I'm thinking that this meeting place that we eventually go to, to the room is Heliopolis. Heliopolis, it was the city of the sun in ancient Egypt. It is where Ra was first created. He came forth without parents. And so he was the first human being. Ra is the god of the sky and the sun. He was the ruler of Heliopolis. So this is kind of like the cradle of civilization. This is the beginning of everything. Was this place actually called Heliopolis? Did he find records that say this is Heliopolis or did he name it Heliopolis because it reminded him of that place? You mean Ernest? Yeah. Because I just felt that whole discussion of is this... Is this a place the Gould have had some interaction with or or not? Because it's not on the cartouche. So the implication is that the Gould didn't know about it, which is, first of all, proof that the Gould did not build the gate system and also could be an advantage that there are planets that the Gould don't, are not charted. That could be something they could use. But this this issue seemed to be unresolved as because there did seem to be some evidence of Gould involvement. Or there's evidence that another alien race that that Gould ripped off is there. So it's something even more ancient than the Gould. But why would they call it Heliopolis? That's my question. So did Heliopolis predate the Gould? So if Ra was the first, essentially the first god on Earth or in this in ancient Egypt, did they did this give them the idea to start impersonating human gods? 
So did the Ga'uld rip off the concept of playing a god to the humans? You know, this this never really gets answered, just a mini spoiler. I, they, I don't really feel like they really ever an- answer how these things work, but we know already from Thor's hammer that there was at least one alien race that was, you know, benevolent, that impersonated gods for the purpose of helping humans. That was Thor's race. Although the Vikings are like much later than the ancient Egyptians, like much, much later. So it's unclear if they got the idea from, from like, let's say they saw the Gould interfering with humanity and decided to like impersonate gods as a way to combat it, or if the Gould got the idea from them, or if there's another one of these four races that were somehow involved, we don't really ever know. But there were a lot of people playing gods to humans all over the place. We're very gullible. <laughs> Apparently. This, this is a separate idea from the, on this show that aliens started civilization on earth, Right. But the real world idea that aliens created the pyramids comes from colonialism and racism saying, oh, these Africans could not build these on their own. And then with the Nazca lines in Peru, same thing. It's like these is too advanced for the peoples that live there at the time to have been able to do it. It's, it's racism. It's colonialism. It's, a, it's just like a lack of curiosity about history. Instead of figuring out how could these have people have built something that was so technologically advanced compared to other things at the time, the assumption is they just simply could not have. So we'll just make up this ridiculous explanation. Really? You would prefer to believe that aliens came down and built these things rather than just smart indigenous <laughs> people? I mean, come on now. I mean, I'm happy to believe that aliens have done a whole bunch of shit in human history. That's fine. But yeah, it, it, it shouldn't be like a stand in for your racism. Rose just wants to get probed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we do have that scene where Catherine and Ernest have their first real conversation, which I think is very, it's very honest. She doesn't lie to him. She doesn't like tell him everything's going to be okay. And it's okay. Like, she's very honest. Like I never forgave you because I thought you were dead like that. The, whatever fantasy you had is not really me. And you need to come to terms with that. I'm this person standing in front of you. I'm old. You're old. Let's deal with it. And I, I respected that she really was very forthright with him. Then we go back to the gate and they find out that there's a storm approaching. Oh no, a storm. The castle might collapse. It has been collapsing this whole time. Well, do you think the gate activation made it collapse faster? So maybe this could help my whole, like, well, they just got there in the nick of time. Like, because it, because it sort of rattles the building, had it not been activated, that would have survived this storm? No, because if you remember, we saw, I mean, half the cliff is gone. So that maybe it would have had another couple years before it fell in the cliff in the ocean and the like shaking of this really old building with the gate activation made it accelerate. So the entire cliff just fell when the gate activated. <laughs> and and Ernest didn't wasn't didn't come out naked and crying and say, hey, uh, you guys collapsed my my Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's like broken, there's broken pillars, there's parts of the ceiling. Literally, when they walk through, there's dust. I don't know if Ernest had dust in his hair. I bet he did. He didn't have any hair. (laughs) He didn't have any hair. You're right. But if you remember, he said, um, let's go to the safest room in the castle. So he knew that this castle was eroding. Yes, I, I agree. I'm sure the vibration created something, but it was collapsing. 
it was collapsing. I just think maybe they would have had a, you know, maybe it would have had one more storm in it if they, if they hadn't come in and messed it all up. Who built this castle? Because this is like very Camelot. Sleeping and- Beauty Castle is what I thought. Right. If we're trying to say that this is this is uh, ancient aliens that created this castle and they're the ones that created the city of the sun in ancient Egypt, why would you pick to make your design from Cinderella? It's weird. Well, it's four different aliens, right? Because there's four different types of writing. It's the, the UN of the stars. So we don't know which of them designed it, built it or whatever. The DHD is broken, so they can't go back. They were going to go back and wait out the storm then see if they can come back after, but that's not an option. And that's when Ernest shows Daniel the the room with the device, which he described as a UN of the stars. So what do we think of this device and this idea of this alien meeting place? The designs aside, <laughs> the, the concept of it. I liked the concept. I don't quite understand how they are able to communicate with each other by these molecules though. I don't either. Me either. I'm very O'Neill about this. Who's just like, I don't understand it, let's go. But I, I, I mean, I understand that this is like the Rosetta Stone for the aliens, this use of the, the elements, but it completely went over my head. No idea what was going on, but it was pretty. And so, I mean, I think we can presume these four alien races were like super advanced and super smart. So yeah, were they sharing information? Were they trying to communicate with each other or both? So was it supposed to be like an archive? You know, we don't really know. And I guess we'll never know because they falls into the sea. And then Daniel seems very, very enthusiastic about this whole device. He thinks it could be the key to understanding their existence and the meaning of life and everything. And Jack brushes him off and says, basically, if you can't share it, or if they can't get out of there, then it doesn't mean anything. Is he right about that? Yeah. So one of the issues is, is that everything that Daniel cares about, it must be destroyed. <laughs> We've seen that repeatedly. Um, yeah, that is pretty harsh. <laughs> they really, they're really pretty rough with Daniel this season. It's like, here's, you, you love your wife? Oh, no, she's a gold. Your brother-in-law, also a gold. <laughs> you love learning about stuff? Gone. Sorry. And the only, the key to, to taking the Gaul out of Sheree, we're going to make you destroy it. (laughs) Whenever Daniel, yeah, whenever he gets excited, let's crush his excitement. You know, I never really put that together, but now I have a lot more sympathy for him. Like he's just clinging to something that will bring him hope and joy. (laughs) Insist on crushing his hopes at every opportunity. We go back to the gate area and we see Sam and Teal'c working on the DHD. They manage to turn on the gate for like a millisecond. It lights up and then dies. Then you have your mini shipper's corner where Jack grabs her by the vest and pulls her out of the way. I hesitate to call it a shipper's corner because really he's just saving her life (laughs) by pulling her out of the way of a collapsing floor. But I liked it. (laughs) Not going to say I didn't like it. And then the DHD falls into the ocean. So that is going to be a useless device from here on out. Although before that happens, Carter does look particularly badass as she's walking around, pushing wires and connecting this to that. And the mouth and the, they call it a Fred. It's just all splayed out there with the wire sticking out. Good scene. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely get from this show why she's on that team. Like she knows what the hell she's doing. And you also get Teal'c's great line of, we have the Stargate. We need the DHD. 
Yeah. I love Teal's comedy. Like he's just the perfect straight man comic. You know, like he, he delivers those lines. Great. Even when uh, they were in the boardroom with Hammond and Catherine says, you speak. And he's like, I think he said something like, I should have written it down. When, when it is appropriate. Exactly. Exactly. He's total deadpan. And mm-hmm. even Hammond is like cracking a smile. They say they need a power source. So they, I think, very reasonably decide to go try and get the power source from this device. Daniel gets very upset about it, but ultimately does move aside. And it turns out, unsurprisingly, that they cannot get it because it's really well made and impenetrable by staff weapons. And then you have O'Neill at the end saying, let's try that Ben Franklin thing. So, and again, I have the benefit of having seen the show a few times. There is a repeating theme of Jack pretending to be dumber than he is. So why does he do this? Because he's... He doesn't want us to remember that he's MacGyver. Like he is the quintessential, give me duct tape and a diving bell and I will fix it. I mean, that's what he did, right? I mean. Yeah, basically. Let's put this helmet on the roof with a big long wire and then we're done. Great idea. (laughs) I think he has, I don't know. I think for me, it's like part self-loathing. Like he he needs to be self-effacing in a lot of ways. But he also, I think, does it strategically because he doesn't. He wants people to think that he's dumber than he is because then they let their guard down a little bit more. Well, if if nobody has any expectations of you, then you can kind of fly under the radar, and that has nothing to do with how intelligent you are. So you can be a, a genius, but nobody bothers you if they have low expectations of you. So then you have uh, Catherine and Ernest talking, and that's when Ernest references the torment of Tantalus. That's how he describes Daniel's obsession with the device. Who is Tantalus? So Tantalus, if we all remember Pelops, he's the father of Pelops. He's the one who cut up Pelops, put him in a stew and fed him to the gods. So this is a bad dude. He's also like a thief. He's a bad guy. So he needs to be punished. And his punishment is that he has to stand in this pool of water under a fruit tree that has low hanging branches. Every time he wants to get a drink of water, the water recedes. Every time he reaches for some fruit, the fruit and the branches are out of his reach. So as Catherine says, it's everlasting, unending temptation. Tantalus is the root word for tantalize. So even when Ernest talks about he's reaching for something that's out of reach. So this is the core of this episode. It describes what Ernest is going through, what Daniel is going through. It's an interesting reference and the fact that they named the episode that I thought was a was a good choice. And then you have Catherine telling him he suffered enough and that he needs to stop blaming himself. Then you have also Ernest confronting Daniel, telling him they need to go, that there is no prizes worth attaining if you can't share it. There would be no point and that he knows. And you can really see the pain in him when he says this, right? He's basically begging Daniel to not make the same mistake that he did 50 years ago. I think it was at this point where I started to really notice the music. I remembered that the music in the first few episodes uh, was a little intrusive and overbearing. And I think at this point, right when Ernest said that to Daniel, you hear the music come up like, and I could have done without that music. I think the music gets a lot better as the series goes on. When you go back to the, the gate room, they've rigged up the lightning thing to the gate. It seems like they're cutting it real close, right? Like if, if you're just waiting for lightning to strike, which could happen at any moment, 
which then feeds into the gate. And then you have like only seconds to die, to harness that energy, dial the gate and jump through. It seems like they should all be like standing there fully ready to jump through that. Like there just isn't time for Daniel to be at that device. So I would, you know, it's kind of weird that they aren't forcing this issue a little bit sooner. Well, O'Neill did end up having to drag Daniel away and Daniel went back and O'Neill was ready to go leave him. I mean, Daniel, and I'm sorry, I'm going to be controversial, is an idiot who (laughs) almost got himself and O'Neill killed. I was mad at him. I think it shows really the two sides of Daniel. And I have a lot of sympathy for him because I do think that he is just desperately trying to find something that's hopeful and that he could, and something he could be useful at. And he finds it and they take it away from him. And it seems very cruel. Like I totally understand his, where he is mentally. And he's feeling like you guys go, I'll stay here. I don't care if I die. And if you can come back and get me great. And if not, I died doing what I love doing, but yeah, he is putting his team at risk. They only have seconds to get through. The building is crumbling down around them. Like he needs to go. And by him choosing to stay, he is delaying his team. That's why I question the ending when he decides to leave. I could definitely see Daniel just saying, you know, fuck off people. I'm going to stay here and learn about these lights and these molecules. I don't care if I die. But the thing is, is that even after crushing Daniel, after every instance of crushing him, he has a hope and a belief that he will get another chance. He believes he can he can help Sheree and bring her back. He believes that he can find another Thor-like hammer gateway that will fix her. If there's this one room, this UN for aliens, there has to be another one somewhere else. I mean, what Ernest is saying is true. He wasted 50 years of his life because he couldn't see what he had at home. But is that true? I mean, like, I mean, I think he was, it was a mistake for him to not talk to her about it, right? To not say, hey, this is really exciting and I really want to go through and see what's on the other side. And I'm letting you know, I might not come back. That was certainly something he should regret. But, you know, stepping into the unknown is a valid pursuit. And I, I like, I don't know that I would regret it. Like he, he went through knowing they didn't know what was on the other side, knowing he might not come back. I think that's something that you wouldn't necessarily regret, you know, like you should be proud of, of being an explorer. Yes, but there's like no chance that Daniel's going to come back if he was to stay. So effectively he's dead, possibly. I mean, he would be dead eventually because they can't come back and get him and he can never get to Sheree. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I like this episode is I really feel like this is the first Daniel episode we get where we get more of an insight into how his brain works. And we always talk about how his like desire burning desire to rescue Sharae is like, takes a backseat sometimes to his desire to learn stuff, you know, like that fire under his ass comes and goes. And this feels like it explains that a little bit more. Like you, like you get a sense of who he is as a person and who he is as a person is really a person who loves learning, who loves what he does. He has a really deep passion for this kind of work. And in this moment, I think when he doesn't have anything else, when he is seeing the people he loves be taken from him, is this all he has left? And he's sort of clinging to it. And I love this example of Jack and Daniel's relationship. So is that why Daniel finally left? Because he recognized that if he didn't leave, that he might jeopardize the team? That and he heeded Ernest's words? I don't know. I think Ernest's words didn't really hit home. I think it was Jack standing there waiting for him that did it. That he realized he did have something to go back for? Yeah, even though it was this uh, 40-year-old man, (laughs) O'Neill. But still, that relationship is sort of the 
underpinnings of this show, right? Yeah. I mean, the relationship started on the first mission to Abydos in the movie and it, like it really grows. And there's so many times throughout the series where you see that relationship and how deep it is and how complicated it is and how much they care about each other. And this was a, a perfect example of that. Today, everyone does go through really just in the nick of time, <laughs> barely. That wormhole is like blinking out. If it blinks out while you're en route, do you come through with like no arm or something? Like, could it, could it like, cause it's like blinking out, which I didn't think wormholes can do. <laughs> I guess wormholes can do whatever they want because they don't exist. But like, if you only half get through before it blinks out, do you get like your legs cut off? Or would it be more like your legs are just goo? <laughs> Because they don't materialize. Exactly. Like, or is it like all of you or none of you? So either all of you comes through the way it went in or you just die in the wormhole. I think you just die in the wormhole. I think that would be better. I yeah. wouldn't come back as goo. I don't want to be goo either. Half man, Sentient half goo. goo. <laughs> so at the end of the episode, we're back in the gate room. They're trying to dial the planet and they can't. And everyone tries to make Daniel feel better by saying that, you know, they have, at least they have Ernest's book and at least since Sam's working on a computer model and maybe they'll find those aliens and talk to them someday. And everyone hugs and that's very sweet. So what do we think happens to Ernest and Catherine? Well, I don't think they start up right where they left. Oh. You don't think they go home and like have sex? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think so. I think they have, I think they have something. It may not be like a romance, a big romantic, like fiery romance thing, but I think that they are companions here on out. I would agree. I think that they are friends, but I, I think Catherine had her closure with him. And so I think she's, she's shut that door. I mean, we don't know in this episode, we don't know if she has a, a significant other in her life. We don't see that when Daniel goes to visit her at her house. I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to hang out with somebody who's been hallucinating for 50 years. I, mean, I would hang out with them. I don't know if I would sleep with them. You think he moves into that giant fucking house with her, which is clearly big enough, even if they had separate beds, separate bedrooms. I could I, see that happening. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. where else is he supposed to go? I mean, he, he's, he's old, you know, whatever parents he had are long dead. Maybe his siblings and nieces and nephews who, who don't know him. Let's say he did and he had like some next of kin. Could they even tell them like, oh, we found your uncle after 50 years. Is that even possible? You know, so I think I think she would feel some responsibility. Like imagine coming back to Earth. The last time you were on Earth, it was 1945. Like that's crazy, right? He would have no idea what a computer is, what a TV is, how anything works. So do you think that they now keep her updated on what happens with the Stargate? I don't think you could, you could keep her away from it, honestly. I, I agree. Yeah. Especially, I mean, the relationship she has with Carter, Carter's going to be telling her what's going on. Daniel's going to yeah. be telling her. I mean, everybody loves her. Even Tilk was yeah. like, she's a cool lady. So, I mean, he doesn't, I'm sure they don't allow him access to a phone, but. <laughs> it's going to call. Because how many friends <laughs> there. Just Catherine. That's why I'm disappointed that she's not going to come back because I would think that they would want her to be part of this brain trust. I think they do let her know and they keep her apprised, but maybe also Ernest wants to travel or something. Maybe she wants, you know, maybe hasn't seen anything but that planet for 50 years. Maybe wants to see some places on earth and they like do that together. Okay. So this is the part of the show where we rate the episode. Let's start with Malika. How many chevrons would you give this episode? 
It's got some holes. You know how I feel about the rebar and the concrete coming from the ceiling, but I thought it was pretty good. And so I'm going to give it four chevrons. I would usually give it three, but crying, naked, old man bumps it up one. So four chevrons for me. I like how you're pretty good as four. You're a really tough critic. I'm Sam. I'm ruthless. <laughs> Sam, how many chevrons did you give this? I would give it six chevrons. I like this episode. I like the history that we get. Uh, Catherine's always great. The characters seem to be in character, but the music destroys it for me in some areas. So six chevrons. So I give this seven chevrons. I think this might be my first seven chevrons award. Um, I love this episode. I love the old people love about it. I love the care. I love Catherine. I love Ernest. I think they're all perfectly cast. And I think the way they act with each other is very genuine. I love this theme about like redemption and human connection and the value of the value of being connected to other people is greater than the value of exploring sometimes. So I, I like the message. I like the the hopefulness of having this like United Nations of the stars, you know, it sort of, it gives us some hope that not everything out there is bad, that there is sort of things that are positive and beautiful and, and worth pursuing out in the universe. And the Jack and Daniel friendship is really nice. And I, I think it really helps us understand that better. So seven chevrons all around. I'm a big softy. I know. I know I'm a, I pretend like I'm a tough guy, but <laughs> I love these like softy episodes when they're well done. How would this episode be made differently, if at all? I can't really think of anything. Like the flashbacks were all quite sophisticated. I think they integrated the past with the present quite well. Yeah, I can't really think of anything. Yeah, I agree. It, it, there's, I mean, there's plot holes, but I'm not sure those plot holes would be better now. Maybe they'd be a little better. Maybe we'd get more information about what happens to them after. Because things are just less standalone episodes these days. So I think you get more of an arc. The only thing I would change is I would like to get more exposition on the elements and how that relates to the aliens communicating with each other, how that is a universal language. I wish they dumbed it down and made a good explanation for us because I feel like that's unresolved and I would hope that we would return to that. I don't know. It just made me feel dumb. So I just, I think, I, we're supposed to, I think we are supposed to feel dumb in relation to these really smart aliens. So thank you for joining us. Next week, we will be talking about episode, season one, episode 11 of SG1, Bloodlines. So we hope you join us. We'll see you next week. Bye. 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 Only one vagina per team. Indeed. Like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. If you don't like us, still like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Probing the Wormhole, on Twitter at Probing Wormhole, Facebook at Probing the Wormhole. You can also contact us on our website at probingthewormhole.com. Thank you.